The last four weeks, uh, we've explored together what it means to live a good life, having a good mind, a good community, um, a good cause, and a good practice. This week and next will be sort of a little mini-series that follows up on this, um, where we're going to think together about how a good life of discipleship doesn't keep things the way they are, but rather completely changes and transforms every part of us, every way we think about ourselves and the world around us, uh, that we might better live into God's reign and kingdom here and now today. Now, I'll be honest with you, friends, passages that, that concern this kind of change and transformation aren't easily digestible. They're challenging. They're disruptive to the way we live, the way we think about ourselves in the world, and it's kind of the point. That's exactly what makes it gospel, friends, because what this means is that our Lord is right there with us as we seek to grow more and more in his image and likeness in everything we do. I invite you to listen now with open hearts and minds as we encounter God's word together from the 10th chapter of Mark's gospel, beginning with the 17th verse. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not defraud, honor your mother and father. He said to him, teacher, I've kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go, sell what you own and give the money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then, come and follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God all things are possible. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. Recently, I engaged in a biennial tradition that I dread almost more than anything. I went to the dentist. The bright lights, your mouth being held open for a long period of time, the hygienist making small talk to you and you're not being able to respond. If you want to know a preacher's worst nightmare, that's it. Someone talking to you and not being able to respond. I noticed something, though. In the days leading up to me going to the dentist, and in particular the very morning I went, I started brushing and flossing extra carefully. I do an okay job, I guess, normally, but I was extra careful in those days leading up. 
if anything, it seems I might slack off on this morning I was seeing the dentist because they were going to do the cleaning and all that stuff. But no, I made extra sure I would avoid the scolding from my, my hygienist if I was uh, seen to not be doing a good job. I guess I wanted to just make a good impression. I think we all want to make a good impression, particularly when we're encountering somebody that's an expert in an area. We want to present ourselves well. I think this is exactly what is going on to this young man that goes and encounters Jesus on his journey. The man in our lesson goes to Jesus. He calls him teacher, rabbi, and asks what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. Like me at the dentist, he tries to put his best foot forward. He thinks he has it all figured out, right? Jesus paraphrases the commandments to the man. You know what to do, right? you got to do uh, honor your mother and father, love God alone. Um, but in turn, the man tries to impress Jesus, stating that he's done all this since he was young. Jesus goes on to tell him, though, that there's still something he's lacking. You know, such an ironic thing to say with someone who has so much that there's still something that they lack. What's funny is that Jesus doesn't tell the man what he's lacking, but he gives him the remedy for the thing that he lacks. He says, go, sell all that you have, give the money to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven then. And then come and follow me. Unfortunately, this crushes the man. He can't fathom life without his stuff, so he goes away saddened. His stuff and his attachment to his stuff makes him turn down Jesus' invitation to follow him and essentially become one of the disciples. It's the same exact invitation he gives to the disciples. Now, a lot of ink and theological wrestling have been done with this text uh, in the 2,000 years since. And this, understandably, has produced a lot of different reactions and responses. One extreme example is the um, third to fourth century monk, St. Antony of Egypt, who upon hearing the story as a young man does just what Jesus tells the man in our passage to do. He gives away all of his possessions and goes out into the desert to join a monastery. But more commonly today, preacher types like me try to find ways to water down the story, to make it a little more palatable, to make it more digestible for us in the 21st century. I know in past times when I've preached this text, I've done just that. But I think there's a way to take this text seriously, to be thoroughly challenged by it, but to still wrestle with it. Frankly, it is a challenging passage, but I don't think it's a passage Jesus intends for us to be overwhelmed by, like the poor man he encounters. Now, personally, I like an even earlier saint's take on this text, a man named St. Clement of Alexandria, who said that a person may not need to give up all their things in order to follow Jesus, but rather the things that are injurious to the soul. Instead of getting rid of all of your things, what Clement says and calls us to do is to find ways to practice detachment from our things, that we might, in turn, attach ourselves more deeply to God, to Christ. Instead of an all-or-nothing mentality, this calls us to practice intentionality, 
to be intentional with our things, with our act of owning and consuming things, to remember that we are not our things, that we're not our stuff, we're not the car that we drive or the size of our home or our bank accounts. We're first and foremost children of God. The man Jesus meets couldn't detach himself from his things. He had trouble seeing Jesus. He had trouble hearing the invitation. I'm willing to guess that we might all find ourselves uh, in this man's shoes, challenged, confronted by our very stuff. Now, most of us likely don't consider ourselves wealthy. Now, how could we when there's always someone with more stuff than us on TV? We tend to equate wealth with the billionaires that are, you know, trying to outdo one another in the, the going to space and whatnot. But wealth is always comparative. Writer H.L. Mencken once, quip, once quipped that wealth is any income that is at least $100 more than one's wife's sister's husband. Think about that. I think what's clear though, is that by global standards, we could probably all say that we're wealthy. About half of the world's population lives on less than $2.50 a day. About 80% of the people in the world live on less than $10 a day. Like the man, the rich man in our reading today, we all have stuff. We like our stuff. Probably wish we had more of it. I know I do sometimes. It seems to me that Jesus' command to the rich man is a fitting one for us to wrestle with. Now, like the rich man, if Jesus were to tell us to give away all of our stuff, I think we too would be saddened. I know I would. The reality of this man, a reality that 21st century Americans can identify with, though, is summed up by author Chuck Palahniuk when he says that the stuff you own ends up owning you. Our stuff, our income, our wealth, the things we cling to so often for security can end up owning us. When this happens, we become defined by these things, by the car we drive or income, to put it simply, defined by our stuff. Maybe this is what Jesus is getting at when he says that there's still one thing you lack. This is the thing he's lacking, what he's defined by, not by his stuff, but as a child of God, a beloved child of God. To return to our lesson again, what's interesting here is that we're always quick to get to the command that Jesus gives this guy, to give away all your stuff. We often overlook that he doesn't just command the guy to give away his stuff, he gives an invitation. The command, go sell your things, is followed by the invitation. Follow me. It's not just an empty command to change a behavior. The command is intended to be transformational, to be changed to your very core. He offers a man an invitation not to be defined by his stuff, but by his new identity as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a beloved child of God. To follow Jesus, the one whose death and resurrection makes us all children of God. He invites him to find comfort and security, not in his stuff, but in God's grace. 
It makes sense that Jesus would go on to say how difficult it would be for the wealthy to inherit the kingdom. Jesus isn't condemning wealth here necessarily, but the reliance on wealth that human nature is so prone to do, that over-attachment. In other words, if we rely solely on our stuff for security, how could we ever rely on God's grace alone? If we only look forward to one day accumulating more and better things, how could we ever look forward to God's kingdom breaking forth into our world here and now? You know, my favorite part of this passage, though, friends, is that before Jesus tells them the man to get rid of his things and follow him, before that command and invitation, Mark tells us that Jesus looks at him and what? Loves him. He looks at him and loves him before saying this. It's the only time Mark uses that phrase, and the only time Mark will preface something Jesus says with love. Jesus doesn't tell the man to ditch his stuff and follow him to mess with him or to make him sad. Jesus does this out of deep, abiding love, wanting him to grow in his journey of faith, wanting him to grow more and more into Christ's image. And this kind of transformation, this kind of detaching ourselves from our things so we might attach anew to our identity as children of God is not an easy one. Jesus says later that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom. This means is that for us on our own, trusting in our own abilities and resources, our own stuff, it's impossible. But not with God. For God, all things are possible. We can trust that as we discern this difficult work of what it looks like to detach ourselves from our, our things that we might attach anew to God, that we might draw closer to God and one another in fellowship. We can trust that Jesus is lovingly there rooting for us each step of the way. It's Jesus is there with us in this effort. Now, one such person who has found a way to detach himself from his things and attach anew to his identity as a child of God is a man named Joshua Becker. Becker was a pastor who was living a fairly normal suburban life with his wife, two kids, their two-car garage, and a dog. That garage was chock full of stuff. One Memorial Day weekend, Becker describes how he was committed to cleaning out that garage, uh, a task that uh, I'm sure we've, we could all identify with that one Memorial Day or another, right? And while cleaning, he recalled how his son kept trying to get his attention. His son kept trying to disrupt the process, pleading for his dad to play with him. Eventually, his next-door neighbor, who was also working in the yard, said to Becker, Ah, the joys of home ownership. She went on to tell Becker how her daughter was a minimalist and keeps trying to tell her how she doesn't need to own all this stuff. Those words echoed in Becker's mind, I don't need to own all of this stuff. He realized that his stuff was getting in his way of living. His stuff got in the way of what truly mattered to him. It was currently keeping him from playing with his son, but he knew there was a bigger thing it was keeping him away from, his identity as a child of God. Soon he decided to become a minimalist too. 
he and his family decided to drastically reduce their stuff, moved to a smaller home, and he started blogging about his journey of owning less um, more intentionally through his site um, that's called Becoming Minimalist. He's written several books and has even become a leading voice in the minimalism movement while still practicing ministry. When his neighbor tells Becker that he doesn't need to own all this stuff, can't you just hear Jesus' voice in our lesson? You lack one thing. Your stuff, or your attachment to your stuff, is keeping you from following me. Now, I share Becker's story not so much to try to convince you all to become minimalist like him, but rather to discern what it might look like for you to adopt an attitude or a mindset of detaching our hopes, our, our security, and our stuff, and attaching anew to our identity as children of God. What might that look like in our lives? What might that look like for us as a community? Now, as I said before, friends, this isn't easy stuff. It's difficult, it's challenging, it's disruptive. But as we go on this journey, as we seek to find ways to attach anew our identity as children of God, to seek um, comfort and security in that identity alone, may we remember that Jesus loves us, that Jesus is there lovingly rooting us on, uh, rooting us along uh, this journey as we grow more and more in his image, trusting that our Lord loves us and our Lord never leaves us alone. Let's remember that, friends. May it be so. Amen.